Welcome to the February 9th, 2023 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. First on today's podcast, the dynamics of measurable residual disease, or MRD, over time in myeloma patients undergoing exazomib maintenance. Serial measurements were feasible and provided more detailed risk stratification than single time point measurements. Findings that could have implications for the use of MRD to guide treatment duration. Up next, a research article exploring the relationships between poverty and lack of neighborhood opportunity with outcomes of CAR T-cell therapy in children with acute lymphoblastic leukemia. The findings suggest opportunities for interventions to improve access for less socioeconomically advantaged children. Finally, we'll review a report demonstrating that acquired mutations in the pro-apoptotic effector protein BACs are common in patients with AML treated with venetoclax. These and other research observations reveal BACs variants as a hurdle to the long-term success of BCL2-targeted therapy in this disease. The first research article is entitled MRD Dynamics During Maintenance for Improved Prognostication of 1,280 Myeloma Patients in Tourmaline MM3 and MM4 Trials. The first author is Bruna Paiva of Clinica Universidad de Navarro in Pamplona, Spain. MRD has been shown to be a powerful indicator of prognosis in patients with multiple myeloma. Persistent MRD is associated with inferior survival in multiple settings. The link between MRD and survival has been demonstrated after induction and intensification in transplant-eligible patients. It's also been shown in the context of continuous therapy, both in the transplant-ineligible and relapsed refractory settings. However, there is very limited data on the value of MRD assessment during maintenance and almost no data on MRD during observation. It is anticipated that MRD monitoring could help inform not only prognostication, but ultimately treatment decisions in these settings. Serial MRD data collected during maintenance and observation may guide whether a specific patient needs to start, stop, or resume therapy. The present work by Paiva and colleagues provides important data on the potential role of serial MRD in patients undergoing maintenance therapy. They performed a pooled analysis of data from two global randomized placebo-controlled phase 3 studies of exazomib maintenance in patients with newly diagnosed myeloma. The trials include tourmaline MM3, which enrolled transplant-eligible patients, and tourmaline 4, which enrolled transplant-ineligible patients. Together, tourmaline MM3 and MM4 represent the largest cohort of patients to undergo serial MRD measurement during maintenance therapy or under observation while receiving a placebo. MRD has typically been measured at a single time point in clinical studies providing limited information. Several recent studies have captured serial measurements of MRD and demonstrated that sustained MRD negativity for a year or more was associated with superior outcomes compared with shorter MRD durations. Thus, serial measurements will likely be required to optimize MRD-guided strategies, particularly in the maintenance and observation settings. Accordingly, Paiva and colleagues analyzed serial MRD measurements in patients randomized to either two years of exazomib maintenance or placebo in the tourmaline studies. Their analysis included 1,280 patients with MRD status available at randomization. 
Bone marrow aspirates were collected for evaluation of MRD at randomization, cycle 13, and at end of treatment, at approximately 24 months. This included patients achieving a complete response in both studies, and additionally in patients in tourmaline MM3 who had a very good partial response. They examined progression-free survival, or PFS, the primary endpoint of both studies, in light of MRD dynamics. This study had several key findings. First of all, this study confirmed the independent prognostic value of a single MRD measurement following initial therapy, prior to starting maintenance therapy. For those patients who were negative for MRD at randomization, median PFS was 38.6 months versus 15.6 months for MRD-positive patients, with a hazard ratio of 0.47. The second important finding was that measuring MRD serially provided additional prognostic value. For example, patients with undetectable MRD had a favorable prognosis regardless of whether it was achieved before or during maintenance. Patients who converted from MRD positive to MRD negative at the 14-month analysis had a two-year PFS of 76.8%, which was quite similar to patients with sustained undetectable MRD, who had a two-year PFS of 75.0%. In contrast, patients who remained persistently MRD positive at 14 months had a much lower two-year PFS of 27.6%. Similarly, patients who lost MRD negativity had a prognosis that was poor and similar to those patients who were MRD positive all along. In patients who converted from MRD negative to MRD positive status, the two-year PFS was just 34.2%, compared to 75.0% for those who maintained MRD negative status. The third important finding was that the impact of ixazomib maintenance treatments differed according to MRD status. Ixazomib treatment improved PFS versus placebo in patients who were MRD positive at randomization or at the 14-month landmark analysis. For patients who are MRD positive at randomization, median PFS was 18.8 months for maintenance therapy and 11.65 months for placebo, with a hazard ratio of 0.65. As for patients MRD positive at 14 months, Median PFS was 16.8 months for maintenance and 10.6 months for placebo, again with a hazard ratio of 0.65. However, in patients who were MRD negative at both randomization and the 14-month landmark, there was no benefit of ixazomib maintenance over placebo. Taken together, these results demonstrate that serial monitoring of MRD during maintenance therapy robustly anticipates PFS, according to Edmund Watson and Karthik Ramasamy of the University of Oxford. In their commentary, entitled Flicking the Switch in Myeloma MRD, Watson and Ramasamy write that this study demonstrates the feasibility of capturing the dynamic changes in MRD with longer-term monitoring and provide a rationale for trials that investigate intervention prior to relapse. However, the results also bring up questions that need to be answered prospectively. Namely, could the duration of maintenance be shorter in patients with sustained negative MRD? Or conversely, should maintenance treatment be escalated to convert MRD-positive patients to MRD-negative? And can we predict which patients will convert from negative to positive? This research also raises new questions about the underlying mechanisms of MRD progression, as well as the impact of disease factors and immune interactions in the microenvironment. With increasing treatment options made available for multiple myeloma, the authors conclude, dissecting mechanisms of MRD switch and persistent MRD positivity will inform the rational design of treatment strategies that will hopefully improve patient outcomes.
The next research article is titled Impact of Poverty and Neighborhood Opportunity on Outcomes for Children Treated with CD19-Directed CAR T-Cell Therapy. And the first author is Haley Newman of the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Health outcomes in patients with cancer are often influenced by social determinants of health or the conditions and environments where people are born, live, work, and age. Studies show that in patients with specific adult or pediatric cancers, Rates of relapse and death are higher among those in historically marginalized racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic groups. These inequities hold true in children with B-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia, or ALL. Overall, about 20% of children with ALL relapse, but the risk of relapse or death is higher among those patients who live in poverty and those who identify as black or Hispanic. The gap is even greater when looking at overall survival, suggesting that the differential outcomes are in part due to disparities in access to salvage therapy. Issues related to disparities in access and outcome are highly relevant in pediatric BALL, since about one out of every five children with cancer in the United States come from low-income backgrounds. For children with BALL who live in poverty, there are multiple factors beyond access to salvage therapy that could negatively impact outcomes including food insecurity, homelessness, and psychological stress. The emergence of CAR T-cell therapy has moved these concerns to the forefront. We know CAR T-cell therapy can be a highly effective salvage therapy for relapsed refractory BALL, but it's an expensive and highly specialized therapy that must be given in centers with special accreditation, formal expertise, and a wide variety of resources to collect, process, and administer the therapy, not to mention manage toxicity after the infusion. It is possible that the disparities reported for BALL patients in historically marginalized groups may extend to the use of cellular therapy. However, there are few data that address whether CAR T-cell therapy is accessed equitably and whether outcomes following CAR T-cell therapy are comparable. The current paper by Newman and co-authors examined the influence of socioeconomic status in children and young adults with relapsed or refractory ALL or lymphoblastic lymphoma who received CAR T-cell therapy. This included a total of 206 patients between the ages of 1 and 29 who were treated between 2012 and 2020 at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia in clinical trials of CD19-directed CAR T-cell therapy or with commercially available tisagen leclusal. All were naive to prior CAR T-cell treatment. Children were considered to be exposed to household poverty if they had only public insurance. They were classified as having low or high neighborhood opportunity based on the Childhood Opportunity Index, an instrument that includes education, health, environment, social, and economic factors. The majority of the patients, or 63.6%, were non-Hispanic white, 21.4% were Hispanic, and only 7.3% were black or African American. Overall, 35.9% of the patients were classified as exposed to household poverty, and 24.9% had low neighborhood opportunity. However, the poverty-exposed children were disproportionately from historically disadvantaged racial or ethnic groups, at 60% for black or African-American children, 70% for Hispanic children, and only 23% for non-Hispanic white children. About 22% received commercial tisagen leclusal, while 62% received investigational CTL-019 tisagen leclusal, and 16% received HUCART-19. Patients not exposed to household poverty or low neighborhood opportunity were more likely to receive CAR T-cell therapy with high disease burden. 
a disease characteristic associated with inferior outcomes. Whereas children exposed to poverty and low household opportunity were more likely to receive CAR T-cell therapy with lower marrow disease burden than those not exposed. This difference in disease burden at the time of referral may reflect a referral bias, whereby sicker patients from disadvantaged communities are less likely to be referred for CAR T-cell therapy. Interestingly, there was no significant difference in overall survival according to household poverty status or to neighborhood opportunity status following CAR T-cell therapy which is in contrast to data regarding other SAVAGE therapies. This may be explained by the fact that CAR T-cell therapy is a single infusion, potentially ameliorating disparities related to compliance with extended treatment. Similarly, rates of complete remission were high, with no significant differences by exposure to poverty or low-opportunity neighborhoods. However, patients with low neighborhood opportunity had an increased risk of relapse compared to others in multivariate analysis with an adjusted hazard ratio of 2.3, a 95% confidence interval of 1.3 to 4.1, and a p-value of 0.006. As compared to patients in high-opportunity neighborhoods, those in low-opportunity neighborhoods were more likely to experience a CD19-positive relapse, which may have led to superior salvageability, resulting in the comparable overall survival. In a commentary, Rain H. Rouse of Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas, and Anita Nemechek of Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon, said these findings help illustrate the influence of household poverty and neighborhood on access and outcomes of young patients treated with CD19-directed CAR T-cell therapy. It is notable, they said, that overall survival was similar between groups, given that patients unexposed to poverty were more likely to receive CAR T-cell therapy despite high disease burden, an independent prognosticator of worse outcome. However, they added that it is challenging to extrapolate the results of this study to broader populations of patients treated in the real world. Patients in this study did have access to substantial institutional resources, and most were treated on a clinical trial, where they would be closely followed in a way that could have protected against adverse impacts associated with poverty or low neighborhood opportunity. Moreover, black and African-American patients were underrepresented at just 7.2% of the study population. Furthermore, nearly every aspect of CAR T-cell therapy is challenging in terms of access for vulnerable populations, from the logistical requirements of remaining near the specialized center for at least a month, to difficulties obtaining insurance coverage for routine costs, and limited resources to address challenges not addressed in patient-assistant programs. Finally, the commentary author said, this research article highlights the importance of a robust and accessible financial infrastructure to offset costs and overcome logistical burdens to equitable care. Such an infrastructure could result in more equitable outcomes despite a patient's low socioeconomic status or poor neighborhood opportunity. Finally, let's turn to a study recently published in Blood titled Acquired mutations in BACs confer resistance to BH3 mimetic therapy in acute myeloid leukemia. The first author is Donia M. Mujaled, who is affiliated with Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. For patients with AML who are ineligible for intensive induction therapy, the introduction of enetoclax, a BH3 mimetic BCL2 inhibitor, has clearly transformed the treatment paradigm. Venetoclax combined with hypomethylating agents or low-dose cytarabine has quickly become the frontline standard of care for these patients. Unfortunately, disease progression following venetoclax-containing therapy is a frequent occurrence and is associated with poor outcomes. So what are the mechanisms of resistance? 
For many targeted therapies, it might be expected that resistance would occur due to mutations in the drug target itself. And that's exactly what has been observed with venetoclax in the setting of chronic lymphocytic leukemia, another hematologic malignancy where venetoclax has a central role. Some patients with CLL acquire mutations in BCL2 that impair the binding of venetoclax to this target. However, in AML, this has not yet been observed. Instead, research has implicated primary or acquired mutations in TP53, as well as genes involved in apoptotic signaling pathways, including FLT3 and KRAS, NRAS. Altogether, these mutations are linked to reduced venetoclax response. Venetoclax resistance has also been shown to be driven by deletions in apoptotic regulators, including TP53, NOXA, and BAX. The present paper by Mujaled and colleagues focuses on BAX. This is a pro-apoptotic effector protein that induces apoptosis upon activation by BH3-only BCL2 family proteins and is required for venetoclax to work. Again, in the setting of CLL, investigators recently identified expansion of BAX variants in the myeloid compartment after long-term venetoclax exposure, suggesting that BAX might be a potential resistance mechanism in AML. Indeed, in their paper just published in Blood, Mujaled and co-authors now report the presence of BAX variants in 17% of patients with AML that relapsed after venetoclax-based therapy. They identify two types of BAX variants. Some are frameshift abnormalities, thought to truncate the BAX protein or else cause nonsense-mediated decay of its mRNA. Others are missense variants that impair the protein's pro-apoptotic function. In some cases, the BAX variant evolution was polyclonal, involving a dominant variant and additional minor variant clones. Generally, BAX variants arose from a cell population related to the primary AML clone that was dominant at diagnosis. In single-cell studies, investigators found that the BAX mutants could appear in either the leukemic or pre-leukemic bone marrow compartments. Furthermore, in model systems, they showed that BAX-deficient cells were resistant to BCL2-targeted drugs alone or combined with other BH3 mimetics. In a commentary on this study, Omar Abdel Wahab and Wan Jun Kim of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City say the work provides a novel explanation for venetoclax resistance in AML. The somatic mutations in BAX were indeed quite common, the commentary authors said, which raises some important clinical implications. For example, it will be important to determine how early BAX mutations arise, given that patients who respond to venetoclax may often receive the drug without a fixed endpoint. It would also be helpful to know how long BAX mutants persist after the treatment is discontinued. With these insights, it might be possible to alter the venetoclax schedule to prevent emergence of mutant clones while preserving the benefit of therapy. Overall, the findings by Mujaled and co-authors highlight BAX variants as a prominent cause of treatment-related resistance in patients who receive BH3 mimetics that target pro-survival proteins in AML. With increasing use of venetoclax in AML, these results suggest that emergence of BAX variants need to be considered. Together with work in CLL demonstrating that BAX variants arise in the myeloid compartment, the present study highlights BAX defects as a potential hurdle to long-term success of venetoclax treatment. You have been listening to The Blood Podcast. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode. Thank you for listening.